Welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's public debate program. This program engages experts and an invited audience to discussions around cross-cutting issues on peace, security and leadership in Africa. Stable peace continues to elude societies grappling with cycles of violent conflict and general insecurity. About half of the situations where the United Nations has intervened to bring about peace have experienced a violent relapse. Liberal peace building has only delivered mixed results, but a suitable alternative is yet to emerge. Does the society need to rethink how it approaches peace building? This was the core question of the inaugural lecture given by Professor Fumi Orunishaken, the founding director of the African Leadership Center. The lecture was delivered in early July at King's College London. Professor Fumi Orunishaken, who is a professor of security, leadership and development and currently the vice president and vice principal international at the university, is internationally renowned for her passion and expertise in the area of effective leadership in peace building and security. In her lecture, titled Leadership and Conversation in Dialogue, Securing Peace in the Unromantic Context, Professor Fumi noted that the pursuit of stable peace in conflict-torn societies needs to take into account leadership dynamics in these contexts. Professor Fumi argued that understanding the predominant situation, the domain and society levels in which leadership emerges, and the quality of leadership process, particularly how influence is exchanged between leaders and followers, is important in building a shared response to the situation. The lecture began with introductory remarks by Professor Ed Byan, the principal of King's College London. Professor Bayan acknowledged Professor Fumi Olunishakin's tremendous life achievements, describing her as a master of many trades. So, uh, right now, without further ado, I will invite uh, Professor Byrne to give uh, the introduction. Thank you very much. Well, friends and colleagues, this is an inaugural lecture. It's a huge privilege uh, to be able to introduce for such an outstanding colleague. Uh, anyone assigned with the task of introducing Professor Funmi Olana Sarkin instantly, as those of you who know Funmi know, face a huge challenge. No matter how well, uh, or indeed how long one talks, one still ends up capturing but a glimpse of an absolutely extraordinary character. Indeed, Funmi is an individual of such diversified ability uh, that nature appears to make her an exception to the popular expression, Jack or Jill of all trades and master of none. She is a master of many. Professor Olana Sarkin's life can be summarized through a string of paradoxes. Uh, she is generous but frugal, frank but sympathetic, firm but fair, radical but highly strategic, and differential and certainly never, ever, ever in any way obsequious. The catalogue of paradoxes that were to characterise her life uh, can be appreciated by considering her childhood. Although born in England, she grew up in a very remote Nigerian village. 
where she was privileged to have gained enormously from the wisdom of her grandmother, who remained one of her major sources of influence and still does to this day. Like many children growing up in Nigerian village in the late, villages in the late 60s, Funmi hawked goods around the town to supplement her grandmother's meagre income. The return of her parents from England liberated her from this grassroots existence and doses of more elitism gradually began to enter her life. The experience of living on the edge and the metamorphosis that came into her life after her parents returned from England made her realise the importance of opportunity such that has driven really her determination to give everybody a fighting chance in life. Opportunity for all is one of Funmi's major motivators. Funmi's determination to think out of the box started during her secondary school days, but really only fully manifested when she got admitted to the University of IF, one of Nigeria's leading institutions to study political science. At the university, she contested and won the election to be the vice president of the Students' Union. And this, again, was a rather bold step in the Nigeria of the 1980s. Given their radical opposition stance to governments they considered dictatorial, most student union executives often ended up being expelled from university. After Funmi graduated, another phase of her incredibly interesting life began to unfold. She left relative comfort in Nigeria and came to the United Kingdom, to England, where she combined working in Burger King with sending insurance premiums to see her through her master's programme in War Studies at King's. Uh, Professor Alana Sarkin uh, will remain grateful forever to Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, Barry Paskins and other staff of the War Studies Department for their genuine demonstration of kindness to her and general support during her student days. Funmi Alana Sarkin's life since coming to King's College London has been extraordinary. After the defence of her doctorate thesis, Peacekeeping in Liberia, she went to, on to obtain the MacArthur Postdoctoral Fellowship in the Department of War Studies. On the, on the completion of this prestigious fellowship, she co-established the African Security Unit with Professor Obadan Alao. At the time of the establishment, this was the only unit exclusively devoted to the study of African security in this country. Professor Alana Sarkin worked for a brief period at the UN in New York between 1999 and 2003 with the Special Representative of the Secretary-General for Children and Armed Conflict. She returned to King's in 2003 and was appointed the head of the Conflict Security and Development Group. In 2010, she established the African Leadership Center with offices in Nairobi, Kenya and here at King's. This center has now become a critical part of the School of Global Affairs, running two successful master's degrees programs and a very well-regarded PhD program on leadership studies with reference to security and development. Any introduction of Funmi Alana Sarkin without a comment about how she manages the complexities associated with her work and the resulting erratic schedules would be rather incomplete. I need to qualify that, because she does it all wonderfully well. She juggles three or even four appointments together, uh, all at the same time, which is quite a skill. 
uh, physical meetings in London going on simultaneous with a, with a Skype meeting in Nairobi and a telephone meeting uh, in New York, uh, again at all around the same time, is nothing unusual at all. It is in fact a normal thing in Funmi's complex workday. A colleague who has worked with her for 30 years uh, has confessed, and may do so again, uh, that if he did in a week what Funmi does in a day, his internal systems might crash. <laughs> Of course, there are consequences for keeping many balls in the air. She is sometimes just a tad late for appointments, although I've never noticed that, and even more significant at times for her flights. Um, those of you who spend too much time at Heathrow may well have noticed the public address system at Heathrow Airport announcing, uh, could Funmi Alana Sarkin go to the plane immediately before the door closes? <laughs> that is nothing strange. Such is the multi-dimensional life of this amazing character. Funmi Alana Sarkin has contributed tremendously to the field of leadership and of African peace and security, publishing a number of influential books and more than 100 articles. Additionally, she has been associated with international and regional organizations working on Africa and on peace and security. I can categorically say that her work shows a serious and deep commitment to the teacher-scholar synergy and furthermore, of the admiral dialectic between research, practice, and learning, which I've seen firsthand that most of us in academia aspire to, but few truly attain. Enough from me, distinguished guests, I present for her inaugural lecture, Professor Funmi Alana Sarkin. Please welcome her. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to welcome all of you. Thank you for making time to attend my inaugural lecture. I want to especially acknowledge those who have traveled from far to attend this occasion, including Yusuf Ali, Chair of Council Oshun State University, Nigeria. Godwin Murunga, Executive Secretary of the Council for the Development of Social Science Research in Africa, Kodesria, which is based in Dakar. Trustees of the African Leadership Center Trust in Nairobi, represented here uh, by Peter Dacosta and Zida Mayhofa Mangeli. Shuvai Nyoni, Executive Director of the African Leadership Center in Nairobi. Salmanun Lukman, Director General of the Progressive Governors Forum and his team. Ituan Basi, award-winning fashion designer. Michael Owiso of Maseno University in Kenya. Lamy Phillips of Darwin College and UN Ambassador. And last but not least, the secretaries to governments of, of nine states in Nigeria present, who especially arranged their program to coincide with this inaugural lecture. I thank you. I do not take all of your presence here for granted. When I look around this auditorium, and I know who has made time to come, I'm filled with a deep sense of occasion. 
for I know that this is much more than an inaugural lecture. Two years ago, we witnessed the first Nigerian give an inaugural at King's. But not before now has a black woman, a black African woman, grown and risen through the ranks at King's to become a professor and to give an inaugural for the first time in its esteemed history. This achievement is the result of efforts by many people for a larger part of my life. At King's, I was molded into a passionate academic in the Department of War Studies. Then, at the time led by Professor Laurie Friedman. Barry Paskins, I hope he's here today, he was invited. He admitted me to the MA program almost as an act of faith. My grades from University of Ife were not much to write home about. Of course, I blamed it all on students in your business in Great Ife. When I flunked the military history exam, I wondered what he must have thought. But I promised him I would do better, and I did. I retook the MA and passed the exam. My tutors were jubilant. I embarked on a PhD, this time more focused and dedicated, despite the great hardship and difficult circumstances for myself and for my family. Laurie Friedman's support was critical to ensuring that I made it to Liberia for my field research. Following the defense of my thesis, which began my long-standing relationship with my examiners, Jack Spence uh, and James Gao. I received a letter from Laurie Friedman congratulating me on my performance at the Viva. He was, and I quote, especially pleased to hear about how highly the examiners rated my thesis. This not only does great credit to you, but reflects well on the department, end of quote. He wrote, after my postdoctoral fellowship, I would find a home at the Center for Defense Studies, later International Policy Institute at King's, under Professor Michael Clark's leadership, where Abiodun Alao and I would test some of our ideas for growing an African security program. On the advice of Christopher Dandeka, my PhD supervisor, I then went on a staff exchange program at the Institute for Strategic Studies in the University of Pretoria, where I made lifelong friends and colleagues in the past 20 years, uh, certainly. The last decade and a half of my career following my return from the United Nations, has also been one in which people at King's once again created space for me to pilot ambitious projects, one of which grew to become the African Leadership Center. Laurie Friedman, Jackie Phillips, and others uh, in the fundraising support office at the time were pillars of support. The survival and sustainability of the ALC depended not only are the supply of brilliant and visionary students, its fellows, and there's no shortage of that. It also required a solid intellectual base and knowledge transfer capacity provided by many committed mentors, mentors of the ALC from across the world. 
and of course the assurance of a stable institutional home. Keith Hoggart, then as Vice Principal International, made that stable home possible. So when Professor Ed Byrne and his senior leadership team, some of who are present here today, appointed me Vice President and Vice Principal International last November, they completed the promise of progress for people like myself who, when given a place to stand, have the potential to move the world. I am privileged to serve as Vice Principal International along with four other amazing individuals who are all present here today, as well as a team of exceptional Vice Deans International, many of whom are also present today. The day-to-day -day juggling of my roles at the ALC and at, as VP has relied on incredibly supportive teams at the African Leadership Center. You know I can't name you all, but you make me so proud. And at King's College, uh, at King's Worldwide, I cannot begin to mention you by name, but I stand here today feeling a degree of pride that I hope you share with me because of the support that you have all given to me and that I hope will continue. This mutuality of trust and confidence is something that is what makes us who we are. I want to extend my thanks and appreciation to close family and friends present today. I cannot name you individually because you're numerous. Several of my nieces, godsons, and goddaughters have taken a keen interest in my work. I single out my nieces, Ifeolu and Eniolami, who are standing in for the others who cannot be here today. Their presence in my life has always filled me with both pride and trepidation because of the difficult questions they sometimes ask about my work. Ifeolu was 12 years, the same age that Eniolami is now, when she asked me what subject I taught in the university. Upon giving her a response, she asked, what is security antifumi? It took an entire evening to deal with that question. <laughs> and I don't think I answered satisfactorily. I therefore prepared my inaugural lecture also with them in mind, hoping that you now have, uh, you now better understand what I do. Lastly, I want to give a special mention to two women who are a profound influence at different stages of my journey, but are not alive to celebrate this milestone with us. Beatrice Ajay Berotibi, who raised me, my grandmother, and late Margaret Aderisola Vogt, my mentor at the United Nations, where very few young African women were present at the time. To them and to all of you, I want to say thank you. Let me now begin to go through the substance of this inaugural lecture, which has five parts to it. The first is journeying through the romantic and unromantic context. The labeling of the context that constitutes the focus of this inaugural lecture as unromantic has invoked much interest, I know, because I've received a, a number of questions and interviews about this. The use of the unromantic label is intended to drive home the realities of the human condition in places where daily survival is not easily predictable. In some such situations, 
Already dire conditions are compounded by the destructiveness that occurs when mismanaged conflict escalates into violence. As such, the perennial pursuit of peace and stability becomes a key feature of this context. The relative serenity and idealized sense of reality that comes out of places where the course of life and living are more predictable, such as this very city from which this lecture has been delivered, can be attractive, if not seductive. And this can sometimes color our judgment or determine the expectations we have of people in unromantic contexts. It is, however, too simplistic to imagine that unromantic refers only to the challenging conditions in the developing South, while romantic contexts are those of the more affluent, stable societies of the West, or indeed the global North. For those who face the realities of life in the unromantic context, the fact of their presence in the South or North matters little. To be sure, there is no absoluteness to the romantic context under discussion here, nor is there an out and out romantic context. Perhaps it is better to talk of unromantic and romantic conditions. There are zones of romance in the unromantic, even if they serve as reminders of the grave inequalities in those contexts. In the same vein, the romantic contains unromantic pockets. The soberness and hard-headedness of the unromantic can sometimes illustrate the worst of the human condition, and yet bring out the best of innovations whilst demonstrating human resilience. Solving everyday problems in the unromantic context can become a crisis or result in instant innovation. I thought I should ask you to consider these snapshots of everyday living in the unromantic context. This guy is teaching Microsoft Word without a PC to students who have never seen a PC. And some of you saw this circulating a while back uh, on WhatsApp. This is recycled clothing. And you know how much of this makes it to uh, several parts of Africa and Asia. This is somebody in, the Fran in Francophone Africa who doesn't even know what is written on the T-shirt. <laughs> Again, you see these local community associations and what we send to them. Now, when you send things to the village, you need to let them know what, it's, what they're useful. But clearly, this is useful as well. <laughs> All of you that have traversed the continent of Africa, maybe certain parts uh, of Asia, but certainly many parts of Africa, you know just how many people can be passengers paying money on motorcycle uh, taxis. Here's a very interesting one. That is innovation. That is innovation in the unromantic world. So it's not all doom and gloom. Another sign of innovation here. I don't know how he's done that, because how he's not burning. Uh, but that's the skill to it and he'll probably get out within three minutes. 
So, let me continue. In the less than ideal reality of life, many of us crisscross criss romantic and unromantic spaces and conditions and have done so across time. The differences between the two contexts and conditions can sometimes be a matter of degree rather than substance. Romantic contexts and conditions too sometimes produce extreme insecurities, particularly when underpinned by inequality on unequal life chances. However, one reality which sets societies where the unromantic dominates everyday life for the vast majority is that of a generalized sense of insecurity, which makes such contexts demand a specific focus. I have positioned myself at the intersection of the romantic and unromantic context. I stand before you as a catalog of dualisms. I'm a scholar that sits at a spe specific, a special place of privilege. My personal and professional lives have intricately combined the romantic and unromantic. I was, bo I was born in East Dulwich, uh, London, to Nigerian students. I was sent to Nigeria at the age of 20 months and raised by my grandmother. That singular experience was the first manifestation of the many dualisms that would characterize my world. To the village children with whom I played, I was at once a member of the community as well as someone who came from the white man's country, even if I had no recollection of that place from which I was imported. Daily greetings from old women and men, friends of my grandmother in whose company I felt comfortable, were incomplete without inquiries about how the little foreign one was doing, even after years of having settled. My student years in Nigeria particularly at the University of Ife combined studying with active student unionism with an intense period discovering some of the cities of neighboring countries in West Africa, those who hitchhiked across West Africa with me, like Jumoke Jalade or Jumoke Shongowawa now, uh, are here uh, in this room. My career has also been shaped by a duality of being an academic and a policy practitioner in almost equal measure. My stint at the United Nations working in the Office of the Special Representative for Children and Armed Conflict, and my active life at the Center for Democracy and Development, the brainchild of Kayo Defiemi, of which I was co-founder with late Tajuddin Abdul Rahim, provided solid ground for what has become my sustained engagement with policy and practice. It was in the environment in the Department of War Studies here at King's that I fully understood my purpose as an academic whose contribution will be to bring the weight of a particular form of knowledge to bear in transforming what I now refer to as the unromantic spaces that I straddle. Interestingly, it was my experiences at the United Nations that would play a huge role in shaping my intellectual trajectory. Invariably, this inaugural captures my personal and professional realities in a contextualized way. The inaugural lecture is invariably an attempt to present scenes from the two worlds uh, between which I commute and to draw lessons for those stationed on the cusp, as well as those seeking to contribute to managing higher levels of uncertainties in the unromantic world. The relevance of my professorship is its relevance to daily life and not esoteric conceptualization of the ivory tower. What I present to you here 
is the evolution in my own understanding and contribution to problem solving at the global and regional arenas through research and policy engagement on an issue that has occupied attention at so many levels, even as it has evolved, that of the search for sustainable, sustainable peace. Let me move to my sojourn into academics, seeking knowledge and explanations for my experiences. Two phenomena have remained constant in my observations across this context over time unrealized aspirations and unmanaged conflict. They're not new phenomena or conditions within human communities, however grouped or governed. A lifelong line of questioning connected to these phenomena has evolved over time. From being too inquisitive in village settings about why girls could not see the dancing masquerade, the Africans in this room understand what I'm talking about, but only boys could. Why older men presided over certain spaces and not the women who sustained those spaces? And why so few young people realized the aspirations they so passionately pursued at some point? That's a case of many of the mates I left behind in the village. This applies particularly to the aspiration to live well, whatever it means to us. Who decides who gets to live a good life and who doesn't? Who is absent? from key decision-making spaces, and why? Where is the silence? And why is the silence? What is left unsaid that matters more than what is said? Why is power constructed mostly in hierarchical and coercive ways, even among the oppressed and the coerced? Why is the longevity of soft power rarely attractive to those in search of stability and peace? Why is peace itself little researched while violence in all its ramifications seems ever so seductive to watchers and actors alike? To a simple mind, these questions ought not to be disconnected. And indeed, they are not disconnected in the worlds I have uh, described between which I commute and could perhaps produce ready and simple answer, answers. Tempting as it is to hazard a guess that unrealized aspirations lead to the pursuit of violent solutions and outcomes, and many others before my time, Ted Robert Gore, Why Men Rebel, from Robert Gore to Robert Kaplan in the coming act anarchy have offered explanations. It is also the case that, it, that recent research has shown that the vast majority of young men with unrealized aspirations to live well and to live long do not resort to violence. Conversely, violence seems rife among those with a reasonable degree of realization of their aspiration to live well. Still, these obs observations are fraught given the relativity of what living well means to individuals across time and space. Discovering what this means and what implications it has for peace and stability is invariably the challenge that has driven policy and academic researchers like myself for generations. The idea that the instability and hardships of the unromantic context stem from failure to accumulate the aspirations of the people in a collective and relevant governance arrangement has underpinned some of my research questions. 
As a student of political science, my thinking about peace and the management of insecurity was influenced, like, uh, like many, by political philosophy. The ideas that I gleaned from political philosophers initially spoke to the realities of my context. The state's reason for being, which Aristotle described in the politics, as the perfect community having the full limit of self-sufficiency, which came into existence for the sake of living, but exists for the sake of living well. That was very appealing to me. The mantra for one in our students' union was man was created not only to exist, but to live well. As I learned about theories of war and strategies for peace, Immanuel Kant's perpetual peace became appealing. The, inevi the inevitability of the states and its institutions as the cumulator of people's aspirations and as the impartial arbiter when the pursuit of conflicting aspirations threatened to break a state of peace in a society was crystal clear in my mind. And in similar vein, the idealized sense of Weber's state as one that successfully claims the monopoly of the means of violence seemed comforting at first glance, as one able to maintain the security of minds and people. In one's realist mind, it is the state that secures and protects. However, the unconscious shades of comfort which this learning produces begin to give rise to conscious discomfort when these ideal constructions of the state are placed in their proper context. The societies and times in which the political philosophers that influence many African scholars and students of political science uh, you know, lived has provoked critical thinking, even if they are peripheral in relation to mainstream knowledge. In the same vein, the colonial state was also considered in Kant's treatise on perpetual peace. Enlightenment philosophers appeared weak on the treatment accorded to colonialism and people from European colonies. Kant was no exception, although some authors give him the benefit of doubt in the interpretation of his works. Howard Williams is an example. Evidence of Kant's universalist perspective has been tested over time. To be sure, it is difficult for any people to challenge these central ideas of living well, having states that will secure and ensure the collective aspirations of citizens to live well, and securing, and securing a peaceful existence of citizens in republics and a federation of republic, republics, as long as every member of that community has a fair chance at this pursuit. In essence, the core ideal of liberal peace is desirable to every human community. My interest, however, was not to add to the rich critiques that exist in abundance. My sight was set firmly on the human communities in those new states of Africa, which were created in the likeness of the European states that colonized them, and with the same underpinning assumptions. The questions that have lingered in my own mind have to do with Africa's inheritance post-colonial elite and their successors. Did they think they too inherited states whose inhabitants would simply exist rather than live well? Given the wholesale inheritance of the very institutions that served the purposes of the colonial system, on what new terms will African peoples and the inheritance elite live together? How will Africans define living well for themselves? 
It was these considerations that heavily influenced my thinking and activism prior to my exposure to the world of policy and practice at the United Nations. Until I joined the UN, I accepted the idea that in the absence of a governing elite's pursuit of a common agenda for societies living well, citizens can and must make demand on the leaders charged with the task of governing their spaces. I saw this as a necessary part of the conversation within a society where the state was not created, especially where the state was not created for the, vast, uh, uh, for the benefit of the vast majority of the population. In a Cold War and perhaps uh, a post 9-11 climate, conversations and contestations over the terms of living together were mediated by power dynamics. Nonetheless, the end of the Cold War ostensibly provided a moment of opportunity for African states and societies to have the long overdue contestation over the quality of citizenship and the people's relationship with their hollow, hollow states. The civil wars in Liberia and Sierra Leone were not necessarily thoughtless, as Chris Kramer would come to acknowledge in his book. It was inevitable that across societies where the space for demand and contestation and meaningful pursuit of, uh, of conflict was virtually non-existent, when the space opened up, such contestation might conceivably produce violence, even if not destructive uh, of the destructive nature that occurred. As a doctoral student, I studied the intervention in Liberia in the Liberia Civil War with fervor. It was as much personal as it was a novel idea, uh, area of study. My friends had been caught up in war or lost relatives. I told you I hitchhiked across West Africa. West African media was full of stories of innocent souls lost in war. Butrusgali's agenda for peace in 92 had set the tone for what still remains a class of peace intervention, post-conflict peace building. Like many of my contemporaries, I did not question much the need to put a state back together after it had collapsed. But perhaps more significantly, it was what type of state uh, which needed to be rethought. It was the type of state which needed to be rethought. To the third part, the road to Damascus, my experiment as a policy practitioner at the United Nations. My experience as a staff member of the United Nations between 1999 and 2003 transformed my worldview. I went on the strength of the persuasion of Ola Rautunu, the first uh, UN Special Representative for Children and Armed Conflict, appointed by Kofi Annan. I would later be in charge of the Africa program of that office, and in particular, the work relating to the flagship country, Sierra Leone. Until that time, my academic and policy engagement was with visibly powerful actors, governments, peacekeepers, and policy decision makers. Through my work at CDD, we had drawn workshops anyway, which brought warring parties together. Four events would radically transform, alter my perspective of interventions in particularly on romantic contexts such as this. The first occurred during the SRSGs, Mr. Otunu is the SRSG, I'm just using that for short, first mission to Sierra Leone and Guinea, on which I accompanied him in September 1999. In Sierra Leone, we traveled across the country to witness firsthand the impact uh, of the war uh, and to propose an agenda for rehabilitating the children affected by that conflict. We flew by helicopter to Makeni, and one of our stops was at an IDP camp, 
uh, internally displaced people's camps. What I saw was the sharp opposite of what I encountered during my earlier visits, and I'd been to Sierra Leone more than a dozen times before then. There were hundreds of children who seemed anything from toddlers to adolescents. Many of the little ones were in tattered clothing, some with underpants, some with one slipper or oversized shoes. They were assembled in an open space, and I recall it uh, every time, in front of a building. The SRSG and senior UNICEF officials were escorted to the front, and they stood on the pavement of the building for a good view of the children. Then the children were motioned to sing a welcome song for Mr. UNICEF. Those wretched children sang like angels. I went behind the UN vehicle that brought us, and I wept like a child. The second event was meeting with local civil society associations, during which we met the youngest victim of the war in Sierra Leone as at that time, Abu Sese. Abu Sese's mother recounted her ordeal while fleeing the Revolutionary United Front, uh, RUF for short, soldiers during the January 1999 invasion of Freetown. She knew she would surely be raped if she was captured by the RUF. But she assumed that they would have no use for her baby. The rebel groups only recruited older children who could be trained to handle AK-47s. She set baby, baby Abu down on a street corner to give herself a chance to run faster, to escape capture. Unable to capture Abu's mother, the soldiers returned to the baby and chopped off his left foot. Abu Sese was 10 months when we met him and his mother in September 1999. The scar from his brutal amputation was still new. Ambassador Otunu wept openly. While the story of Abu Sese was just as moving, if not more moving, I was not immediately sure why our experience at the IDP camp left me more troubled. Upon further reflection, I realized that the IDP camp, camp placed a sense of responsibility on me and others, and a deep consciousness of my own privileged position. These were children too, just like I was with my grandmother in the village, but my setting was more romantic, was romantic actually, because I didn't experience war. We could have better managed the power dynamics at play. The children were clearly happy uh, to be singing, and that experience certainly illustrated the resilience of human beings, even in the most dire of conditions. But the view of the UN officials coming in from their romantic context, looking over the children like subjects, and coming across, even though unintended, as patronizing to the people in that heavily unromantic context, haunted me for some time. It taught me about the importance of reflexivity in re relating to communities that are far less privileged and vulnerable. I could not stop thinking that I should have altered the setup of that gathering. Could we have all entered and held hands and sang together with those children? And to what effect? Third event. Mr. Atunu's meeting with six senior representatives of the RUF, those who studied civil war, civil wars 
uh, of the 90s. Understand this well. You also knew what the RUF represented in the media. And that first mission, that particular meeting, gave me an exceptionally useful perspective about speaking truth to power under the, any circumstance. And of the need for actors removed from the daily reality of that setting to do the difficult job of negotiating access to captured or kidnapped citizens and, uh, or their release. In the January 1999 uh, invasion of Freetown, where one month old Abu Sese at the time uh, then had his foot cut off, nearly 4,000 children were abducted from Sierra Leone's capital city, Freetown. The SRSG had requ requested a meeting with UNICEF and the humanitarian community to support uh, the kidnapped children. The persuasive and yet passionate way in which Otunu communicated to the RUF commanders at that meeting made an impression on me as a young scholar and practitioner. Furthermore, the legitimacy accorded to senior UN representatives, even among armed actors who had shown no regard for established order, left me with a positive impression that the UN had great credibility as a universal actor for peace. If only the organization had a rigorous formula for mediating these spaces, it might realize greater success. The fourth event that transformed my worldview occurred at the end of that visit, and it triggered a chain of events. Otunu proposed a 10-point agenda for the protection of children uh, affected by war in Sierra Leone one of which was the National Commission of War-Affected Children, which is called NACWAC, and for short. I was responsible for the implementation of the agenda as part of the Africa program of the office. Otuno and I will return months later with the aim of consolidating the plan for the establishment of the commission and our green terms of reference. It was a moment of opportunity for me. In my room at Mamiyoko Hotel, I was up for much of the night drawing up a terms of reference to be discussed with the Minister for Social Welfare, uh, with whom we had breakfast in the morning. The government of Sierra Leone, it went well. The government of Sierra Leone would later receive uh, a multi-million dollar support under the heavily indebted poor countries, what is known as HIPIC uh, scheme, funding scheme for this network. Despite these wins, I consider this experience my most spectacular failure in my time at the UN. Even though I returned to Sierra Leone periodically to meet with the ministry to see how NACWAC was progressing, in none of the follow-up missions did I visit any NACWAC uh, rehabilitation centers in the provinces. Not even the one uh, province, uh, the district of Kailangu, which had been badly affected by the war and had, seen, and was, had seemed to be a flagship. So in my visit to Sierra Leone in 2003, as I was winding down, uh, winding up at the UN, I decided to go on a private visit to that district, facilitated by a colleague in conciliation resources. The only thing to show that an institution was present at that location was a signboard that read NACWAC, with no sign that anyone had lived or worked in that place for many months. I recorded this as a spectacular failure as a UN functionary, especially since the commission had been highlighted as one of our key successes, uh, successes in Sierra Leone in numerous reports of the Secretary General to the Security Council. Again, the power dynamics should have been obvious to me from the start, but it wasn't. 
the fact that one individual from a powerful global institution, as uh, I was a mid-level professional officer, but nonetheless the power dynamics were there, would come, fundraise, uh, and shape the TOR, and design the agenda for the commission, proved to be a major challenge. There were not even pretend consultations beyond uh, the meetings with the ministry. I was too locked in the romantic context, privileging established uh, frameworks and approaches to propose uh, an alternative channel of implementation. I came away from my time at the United Nations with five key observations and lessons I reflected as I reflected on my brief uh, but challenging, uh, challenging but rich experience in the Office of the Special Representative. You're listening to the inaugural lecture by Professor Fumi Olonishaken, delivered at King's College London. First, Africa's footprint on the UN Security Council's agenda was hugely disproportionate to the country's representation in the spaces where decisions about the destiny of Africans were being made. This is an example. And you could see that situation by regions all through this period. Africa has always been high on that agenda. And this is data from 1989, uh, from 1989 to 2018, to the first quarter of this year. And you could see, in any which way you looked at it, within Africa itself, these are the top 10 situations uh, from 1989 to 2018. This is in terms of how regularly they come on the agenda of the UN Security Council. That is telling. Second, the voice of young people was glaringly absent. Notwithstanding my own privileged position, in particular, African youth, most especially women, who are, were rarely found amongst the junior professional officers and interns. Again, power dynamics were at play such that only wealthier member states who provided for voluntary contributions and other support to the relevant UN offices had junior professional officers in the secretariat. Thirdly, far too African representatives seemed to grab, too, too few African representatives seemed to grasp the realities and the structural flaws that stunted the progress of the UN in various ways. If they did, it was not apparent in their actions. Fourth, and of immediate relevance to the academic environment to which I will return at King's, I noted that the intellectual project of peace was too policy driven too ideological and not sufficiently critical in its approach. Security studies and peace studies were not always closely integrated, notwithstanding that the imperatives of the post-Cold War era aligned their objectives. The pursuit of negative peace, that is bringing violence to an end, had become an end in itself without corresponding investments in conflict transformation. Fifth, and linked to the last point, what has become a peace building is what has become a peace building dilemma and posed a major challenge for the UN peace and security agenda is the agenda is the problem of conflict relapse. In about 50%, just under 50% of cases where the UN has intervened to build peace, it has returned to make peace again within 10 years. Some of these cases are illustrative of that. And so if we think of what the aftermath uh, of this has been. It's not because myself or my colleagues at the United Nations were ill-intentioned. Ill no, 
But somehow we were locked into a condition where we established, uh, where we saw established frameworks as right because of the values that we held. Fourth, from academic to academica, the art of making change happen. I returned to King's in, in April 2003, a change scholar. I was more questioning both of established ideas and of global governance institutions, as well as on helpful uh, perspectives of leadership and peace building. But I remained convinced about the ideals of the United Nations. My research agenda was crystal clear. I wanted to study and engage conflict-affected societies differently and urgently. I was sure that I wanted to contribute to solving the peace-building dilemma of conflict relapse. And I was clear, like most other researchers as well as policy practitioners, that a more inclusive approach to peace-building offers the best path to sustainable peace. But no radically new ideas emerged as to how the visibly powerful actors, by that those uh, official actors who also have coercive power, how they could become part of the solution rather than be part of the problem or the problem itself. How then did my did the stay at the UN transform my work as an academic? Research in the social sciences, particularly on the subject of conflict and peace, requires a good measure of integrity and reflexivity. Locating and acknowledging the relations of power embedded in research as well as in policy process, processes and policy implement, implementation became critically important to me after the UN experience. Yet in the academic space in general, to be considered a serious academic, one has to be a particular kind of researcher who produces knowledge and publishes via a particular kind of medium. Although the next RAE for the academics, the research assessment exercise or the research, what is now the research excellence framework, excellence framework later made his, uh, life easier for activists, academics like myself, there was thus an important choice for me to make in 2003. Whether to worry about research that would lead to articles for high impact academic journals or to undertake research that was more action oriented and participatory in order to stay engaged with the issues I was involved with at the United Nations. Thankfully, it was not a difficult choice to make. My location at the International Policy Institute and subsequent appointment as director of CSDG uh, already suggested my career track. And I have Michael Clark and Keith Brito to thank for that. In my current worldview, relationships matter more, particularly relationships of trust, matter more than institutions. Mind you, than institutions as an entry point for rebuilding societies that have been torn apart by destructive conflict and, and related insecurities. This may be different for societies that had their own conversations, peacefully or violently, that now have institutions. But when there are no institutions to speak of, something else has to happen. I returned with clarity to the observations I made in early, earlier years, albeit at the time in disjointed ways. Why aspirations are rarely realized among particular groups. Why longevity of soft power is rarely attractive to the coerced why the same conflict recurs several times in a generation, despite many attempts at conflict resolution. My research and, the co and research community contributed in significant ways. 
I will only mention this in headline form. I, um, we have published quite a lot of the outputs of this research, and the essence of this lecture is not that, is not the research themselves, but just something to be cited. Youth vulnerability and exclusion in Africa, with Wale Ismail, Abiodun Alao, and a host of other scholars, about 20 of them from seven West African countries. Women, peace, and security, uh, examining the extent to which Security Council Resolution uh, 1325 was being applied in war-affected countries and those where the UN was not present in particular, with Ekaipe and Karen Banz, and so many re other researchers, about 25 of them across four regions, Europe, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. An action research on security governance in, in Liberia, directly supporting parliamentarians along with African uh, Security Network colleagues and CDD. Uh, Dylan Hendrickson, who's here, would, uh, was uh, a participant in that along with the rest of us. The first two studies confirmed what I observed anecdotally at the UN. Many young people rendered vulnerable to insecurity and poverty do not rely on state or governmental sources to, to respond to their need. Other sources of influence are present, sometimes legal, uh, sometimes illegal. The vast majority of young people pursue peaceful means in responding to their exclusion and vulnerability rather than violence. The initiatives that transform women's lives on peace and security are organic and occur even in conflict-affected societies where the UN is not present. The real issue, therefore, is how do you find, how do you bring these voices uh, to the center? By 2005, whilst those studies were underway, I seized a moment of opportunity to establish a pilot program uh, which would bring a project that myself uh, and Zida Mayhofer Mangeli, who was director of the Resource Center for Black Women in uh, Switzerland, and Abiodun drafted the first proposal for. It was the Peace and Security Fellowships for African Women. In the first year, we received 215 applications for three places, demonstrating a huge need. The ALC was established in Nairobi in 2010. That's, that was the making of the ALC in, in short. The ALC was established in Nairobi in 2010 as a collaboration between King's College London and University of Nairobi. Keith Hogarth was there to launch it as Vice Principal International uh, at the time. The program was in short responding to our theory of change. That if you brought in people from the continent of Africa and from those societies in particular, that where people had been left on the margins, who had an idea of the change they would like to make and had a sense of mission and were given the intellectual capability, analytical power to be part of it and were given space in institutions, they would in turn transform the space. Personal transformation that brings about societal transformation or organizational transformation. But the search for intellectual alternatives, as I will begin to wrap this up, begins to help us see what the research mixed with the policy context has produced. My lived experience of the romantic and unromantic conditions, my academic career, the sojourn at the UN, and the experiments with the ALC and its fellowship uh, programs had, cumul had a cumulative effect of triggering my quest for intellectual alternatives. This led to my heightened interest in leadership studies. But at the same time, we kept the peace and security work going. Governance of security looked different. Some of the most important work that we did on women uh, 
and security governance in the end, with Cheryl Hendricks, Awino Okech, became center stage of some of the work that regional organizations started to do. At the ALC, we compared, compared context in which societal conflict led to large-scale intervention and one in which the local societies helped themselves rather than large-scale interventions. And it wasn't as though the, the difference was one of substance. It was one of degree. And this, we began to search to see some things repeatedly in it. Leadership theory offered an opportunity to alter things. And we have, through so many case studies, started seeing a pattern. So upon comparing my research to my experience, I was able to distill what the UN taught me about the approach to leadership. And the approach to leadership, therefore, within and outside the organization in dealing with issues of peace and security is based on frequently faulty assumptions. One, that people could be trained to become leaders in particularly challenging contexts such as SRSGs, special representatives, and deliver change, uh, de deliver the desired change by the organization. No. Two, the idea that if we build institutions, those institutions in their romantic context, particularly those affected by armed conflict, will regulate political, social, and administrative behavior. Three, that a good or nice, or that good or nice people will make effective leaders who will deliver peace just by the fact of their good intention. That doesn't, that really happens. Four, that ill-intentioned people cannot exercise effective leadership, or if they appear to, we can just ignore this fact and declare them bad people and the world will be fine. No, it won't be fine. And actually, very bad people can be very effective as leaders. The idea circulating outside the UN based on the conviction that a new generation trained to do the same things will have a different answer and only need to be brought uh, to the table also seems uh, seem inherently faulty because they were based on, on, sustainable, on unsustainable assumptions about leadership. So my findings and concluding thoughts. This everyday buzzword leadership is as much a science as it is an art. The science of leadership recognizes the absence of a universally accepted definition. But the literature also identifies a variety of perspectives that explain leadership in its ramifications. And the literature offers a variety of frameworks, and one in particular bears relevance to the societal context, particularly the fluidity of the romantic context. The popular view of leadership is leader-centric and relies on more on trait-based approaches and obsession with style over substance. Leadership in this regard transcends the political spaces and cuts across the entire societal space. In a peace-building context, the institutional framework upon which to establish a basis for a leader-centric peace is often weak or resistance. In almost all the situations we have studied, an entry point that focuses on a set of individual leaders, particularly where we ask who are the good leaders, which is what we asked in the UN, at least during the task forces I was in, rather than a systematic leadership analysis that finds honest answers to the following questions, almost always fails. These questions are rarely asked. And this might be one of the key reasons for conflict relapse. I have therefore, based on the failures observed in situations of conflict relapse, proposed a leadership analytical framework that is still being tested uh, through research. 
And really, this is not the, the intention of this is not to present that framework. It will be part of the, uh, of the purpose in future lectures that are not necessarily in a gathering like this. But nonetheless, questions that go to the heart of efforts to study and navigate a path to stable peace in a given situation should be systematically framed to take these things into account. The predominant situation, the degree of mutuality, the domains and society levels in which emergent leadership is occurring, which never happens, by, by the way, so as to build a shared response to the situation. The quality of the leadership process, how influence is being exchanged between leaders and followers across domains and levels, and the degree of leadership effectiveness and movement towards peace or return to it. The failure to do this, we argue, is the reason why we have been back we created a new state in South Sudan in our own image, and we have been back so many times to make peace, and peace is not at hand. It's the reason why we've gone back to so many contexts to Somalia, why we rejected a state in Somalia that the people built in their own image, and we have imposed our own kind of state. Ultimately, a process-based leadership framework of analysis will expand our thinking and understanding about the processes of bringing lasting peace to war affected states. My foreign to leadership studies has helped explain, to a certain extent, the inconsistency, no matter what traits the leaders had and what skills are drilled into them, their success in, in making and building peace is not a guarantee. The discovery of conversation as a compass or indicator of where to find binding mutuality for effective leadership is perhaps one of my most exciting discoveries in the last five years. The discovery of the notion of conversation during that research is taking us to a new phase. And we will begin to see uh, uh, the kinds of research that come out of VLC in the next 10 years, talk about the focus of individual leaders and the framing around them which would change to an examination of the loci of mutuality that hold the possibility of trust and peacefulness or peaceful coexistence outside of warlords. We would look for zones of silence because conversation, which we went back to the long 18th century to look at, is about talking and talking back. When you talk, people talk back through other things, through art, through music, sometimes through silence and boycotts. And if a society is divided, we have to go back there to look at the range of conversations going on. Sometimes conversations are going on and with people who hold mutuality that do not look like the warlords that we support. Collectively, all of these concepts, research, teaching, and programmatic interventions are part of a single experiment. All of these are ideas yet uh, to be tested and experiments that are yet to reach maturity in terms of the results and outcomes, such as the ALC itself. It's a project of a generation. The pursuit of peace and stability is an endless one in the 21st century world. Peace has no geography. Even when we try to force geography upon a situation, when there's evidence of the failure of peace, the wholesale dousing of the romantic idealized sense of reality, reflecting a moral or physical superiority as a solution to the problems experienced in the romantic context might invite criticisms and resistance. Besides, 
it would be a mistake to think that the idealized solutions to tilt, that the idealized solutions tilt only to one part of the world. Indeed, that very approach to solution finding is rife within all societies, regardless of the sociocultural context. Thus, the treatment of terror attacks with superior Christian values or the prescription of seemingly perfect democratic Western model of the state as the answer to a collapsed one in Africa and in record time too, without a closer look at the organic conversations uh, and in those settings which give rise to the crisis in the first instance become problematic. Thank you very much. Fantastic, uh, really interesting and inspiring. So we have five or ten minutes for some reflections, some questions. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot there to talk about. Uh, who wants to start? And if you could try and keep your question or your comment quite precise and short, that would be great. And then Fumi can try and respond. Does anyone want to start? Um, making a leader, uh, but uh, the, the, the way a leader leads or, or doesn't. Thank you very much. Do you want to ask that? Yeah, one last time. People are still mulling over and asking great questions. Uh, if 
that could be could be something in there. process-driven approach to leadership actually is about. Uh, you, it's a perfect example of a situation where somebody in a position that had position power had to relinquish that position and truly emerge amongst his people. I'm talking about Kama uh, now. So historically, Botswana managed to settle its leadership question even before it built these kinds of democratic institutions from a monarchy that had an authoritarian pathway to leadership to one where the situation was disrupted and that leader emerges for Kama came out of a collective situation and that's so the, the leadership story was settled a long time ago and it was leadership before institutions even in Botswana it's a fine example, but in many other African countries, they do not even have the opportunity to have the kind of conversation that went on in Botswana, because those conversations are regularly mediated by other power dynamics that do not allow the societies to have a very, uh, to come through an organic process to evolve leadership. Next question. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Kuni, for a brilliant lecture. I'm more interested in the personal life and the personal uh, <laughs> parts of your life. I'd really like to know, I've, I've observed you over time and the energy levels is uh, out of this world, but what advice would you give your 25-year-old <coughs> self if you are talking to her today? Mm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would be more reflexive of the 25-year-old self was passionate. I had clarity about what I wanted to do. Had I been more reflexive, I might have charted the path a little bit uh, differently. I would not be doing different things. I, would, I had clarity about the things I loved to do. That was not the issue. But had I, had I gone into leadership studies the way I I now uh, better understand, I would have charted a different path of emergence. As I tell my students, when you have the analytical tool for analysis of leadership in a societal setting, not in an organizational setting, if you, don't if you do not apply the right set of core values, even in that class today, uh, in the master's class, we're both we're creating visionary but also fully analytical leaders who can read situations and emerge into leadership and we might be creating monsters as well. But could, had I had leadership study skills at the age of 25, I might have had a different path to what I wanted to do. I may also have done uh, some of my assignments better. <laughs> so perhaps, yes, question Kerry? Oh, you got, you got one here. Okay. First over there and then come to you. All right. Um, 
good afternoon, or good evening. Um, I wonder when you said that um, leadership is a science as well. Um, we're here in King's College London, and there's an African Leadership Center, uh, African Center Leadership, whichever it goes. Um, in Africa, people don't see that leadership is a science in terms of the mindset. So how do we begin to institutionalize that mindset of leadership? We have a lot of people leaving their countries and, and migrating elsewhere because they're frustrated. And the bunch of the people leaving are the people who should be staying to change the countries that they represent. So how do we institutionalize leadership in core um, African countries? Uh, such as the ones that are on the screen. Um, you talked, and I like the question that she asked, what do you tell your 25-year-old self? And you said, if you have the skills. So it's quite important that the 25 to 45-year-olds begin to have those skills, and it becomes an entry point for um, selecting or training the leaders that we need for the next generation um, in African countries. Right. The easiest answer, and I think is the most straightforward answer to give, universities must not shy away from teaching and allowing leadership, leaders to emerge even within the university space as well. But the leadership skills, and if you, you know this better than I, because you are, you are in that setting, just think of the number of African leadership colleges, training centers, all of that that we have. We still make the assumption that all we need to do is build skills. Tra you cannot put traits in people in particular, no matter what you did. You cannot teach uh, leadership by just putting skills into someone. You can build better managers. But there is no textbook answer for leadership unless the analytical skills to read the course of events in society and then think of responses to them. It's outside the box. It's not something you can bottle, and that's why methodologically we teach by case study as well. And you can begin to then theory build over a period of time for a particular set of situations that seem uh, similar. Universities need to do that. Not business schools that, treat, that teach only management, but they teach societal leadership. And it's not about politics. It's about the kinds of leadership that you see the spaces across disciplines. Are you able to see who is emerging and what is emerging? And therefore make sharp, wise decisions as to whether that situation itself requires your leadership or someone else's. And being self-aware enough to know that you do not have the competencies to solve that particular problem. I think African governments have to invest in institutions that are able to teach leadership as a science in order that the training for leadership as an art can be better embedded. Great, and that's the last question. Yeah. I mean, thanks for the fantastic lecture. I enjoyed it. You said something throughout the later part of your lecture. You said personal transformation can bring about societal transformation. Then, putting forward, you talked about the scene where you saw Kate sing for UNICEF Head. As a person with some leadership quality, looking back, could you have actually said to the guys over there that it's actually wrong for this kids to sing for himself each year? Because sometimes, as leaders, I feel we have a lot to play in the society. Just like you said earlier on, 
electron crystal transformation can lead to societal transformation. So I'm just trying to understand the possibility in a situation like that. If you can say to the person in charge of whatever, it's actually wrong for kids here to actually sing for the chair or something, something to us along this line. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you have just touched on the question that I, over the years, have had to reflect on every time. Number one, I had to reflect on it so that I would stop beating myself up about what I should have done and I didn't do. When you look at the power dynamics in African settings, we rely so much on coercive power. And that's, that was my point about you know, the longevity of soft power, the expert power that you have, the reference power, sometimes uh, charisma helps you, but you know, that those things that are your personal leadership qualities, they never go away. Your personal sources of leadership is not even there are so much in the qualities. They never go away. And you have to look for moments of opportunity uh, to make change happen. But I'm not sure whether in September 1999, having just started that job in a UN mission in a very hierarchical institution, where the man I worked uh, for was different. We called him by first name. Almost all the time, you're greeting somebody ambassador, so and so, if you don't call them by rank, and they did not. And that's also very similar to many of the African settings that we're talking about. So without substance, you can hold position power and therefore be coercive in the way in which you govern. I'm not sure I could have spoke to, talked to any of those senior people at the time, uh, but I wish I had tried, if only to have been told. My friend, know your place. You're new here. This is how we do things. But I just didn't try. And that's what I think was important. You have a quick question. Yes, quick one. It's a very quick intervention on this. From then you're not. Are leaders born or made? <laughs> <laughs> so if, if we go to the idea that leaders are born, that leaders are born, we are staying in the realm again of traits, or of the kinds of things that we've been talking about, about uh, position power. Leaders are made every time. If you stay with the idea that leaders are born, you're saying that leadership is not for everybody. Yeah. And meanwhile, leadership is for every single person because change and changing situations compel us to respond at different moments in our lives uh, to change the things around us. And everybody has a chance at leadership. As a teacher, uh, you get invested in your students, uh, and it's always something to see how they move on and succeed and <laughs> achieve sometimes more than you would have expected, sometimes less, um, but you stay interested. Funmi was always a very special student. Uh, she always had something to her, even as she, as she admits, not always her grades, uh, but she had something special right from the start. And it was a resourcefulness and an integrity and a commitment that shone through and took her through her MA, her PhD, her postdoc, uh, her work in the UN, uh, and, and later on. Uh, and we've had this evening uh, a demonstration of what it was that certainly impressed me uh, and my colleagues in war studies from the start, and has come to impress everybody who's got to know Funmi uh, and who's. Uh, 
been with her all the way. She's described her, her journey, it's been an autobiographical lecture in some ways, in candid terms, in honest terms, uh, and conveyed this sense of, uh, she put it, commuting between these two romantic and unromantic worlds, uh, but with a penetrating uh, sense of observation, feeling what it is to be coerced and patronised and marginalised, uh, just as you're also trying to understand the possibilities of policy uh, and analysis and leadership to make it better. She described herself uh, as an activist, academic, gave a dig at the research assessment exercise with which many of us were having a small inward cheer uh, uh, as she did so, uh, because there is value in what we can do in universities that go beyond, not as an alternative to, to the articles uh, and the scholarship, but can go beyond. But that requires activism, not in the sense of promoting constantly a particular ideological or political perspective, but in a grasp uh, of what it means uh, to be uh, uh, suffering, uh, frustrated uh, by, by circumstances uh, and the need to find ways around them. And the answer to these problems, or one of the answers, not the only one, uh, she's shown to be in leadership, uh, described in, in ways that demonstrate how good leadership comes not as an imposition, uh, not through right of birth uh, or race or whatever, but through uh, a sense of the societies from which you come, an ability to converse, to talk, to understand. Uh, and those of us who know, for me knows this is how she practiced her own leadership. She talked about leaderships. She demonstrates it uh, on a daily basis. Uh, right at the start, for me, you uh, spoke with pride about... Uh, being the first black African woman uh, to have an inaugural lecture at King's. There can't actually be many in higher education in the UK. Uh, and it is and should be a source of enormous pride to you and to, and to the institution. Uh, you can present yourself and be seen as a role model, as a woman, as an African, as black. But I think you're a role model to us all, uh, not just to those in those categories. Uh, in your resourcefulness, your integrity, your intelligence, your commitment, your readiness uh, to go the extra mile for people, not only those surrounding you, but people you've come across uh, through your work. And there are many people through the African Leadership, Leadership Centre and elsewhere who are no an enormous debt to you. Uh, so my job is to propose a vote of thanks. I'm sure it's going to be carried unanimously. Thank you. were the closing remarks by Professor Lawrence Friedman for Professor Fumi Olunishaken, inaugural lecture titled Leadership and Conversation in Dialogue, Securing Peace in the Unromantic Contexts. 
Thank you for listening to Public Debate on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. You're listening to the ALC Africa Radio. 